Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to another episode of The Birth Lounge Podcast. I'm your host, Hehe, and I'm ready to dive into everything this week. But before I do, I want to do a mental health check-in. Deep breath in. Hold that and exhale. <sighs> that felt good. And I know it did because when is the last time, be honest, that you truly stopped to take a breath. These last few weeks have been really stressful. They've been really different and they've been really chaotic and they've been really unexpected, unpredictable. It's hard. This change is hard, but you're doing it nonetheless. And I'm here to tell you I'm really proud of you. So before we dive into everything, I want you to give yourself the space to recognize you're doing an amazing job. Give yourself the space to realize that you deserve grace and give yourself the space to remember who you are. Remember that you taking care of yourself is crucial to being able to take care of your family because you're such a pull to your family. All right, today's episode is with a pediatrician. She is a local pediatrician here in Boston and she has been just immensely helpful when it comes to navigating COVID-19 in not only our private practice, but in the birth lounge and now on the podcast and taking care of our pregnant moms, but also taking care of our postpartum moms and also taking care of all the other parents that we serve. She has been just the foundation of this, one of the foundations. I, I guess this is really a multi-layer dip type team situation, but she was definitely a crucial ingredient. And so I wanted to have her on the podcast to answer the the biggest questions, the most common questions that we're getting so far in this quarantine, in this coronavirus time.
Thank you. So excited to be here. I am so excited to have you. I um, gave you a brief introduction, but I, I really kind of told them how I know you and why I trust you to be on the show sharing this information. So before we get started, do you mind just kind of giving us a rundown of who you are? And I know I trust you, but why should my people trust you? Absolutely. Well, first, um, he, I'm very honored and excited to be here. Um, happy to add any insight and hopefully reassurance, et cetera, that I can. Um, so who I am, I am a primary care pediatrician. To give people a little bit of background, I did my medical school um, in Boston. I did my pediatric residency training in New York at a hospital. And relatively recently, about six months ago, moved back to Boston and I'm working for a private practice here. Um, and so I practice general primary care pediatrics. Um, I'm here hopefully today to give you a little bit of my perspective and understanding from a pediatrician standpoint. Um, certainly, I'm not a coronavirus expert myself, so to speak, or an infectious disease expert either. I don't know if anyone is particularly a coronavirus expert these days, but um, hopefully I can add some insight from the general pediatric um, perspective. Totally. Thank you so much for being here. I think this is, um, you know, just one of the scariest times because everything is so unknown. It's like an added layer of unknown for pregnant and, um, you know, new parents as if pregnancy wasn't already filled with enough unknowns and enough things with question marks at the end, we're going to layer on coronavirus. So um, I'm excited to dive in. And, uh, you know, most of these questions actually came from our parents. So let's kind of get started, I guess, right off. I, um, I kind of want to just dive in. I think people are, have probably turned their volume knobs all the way up. So um, let's talk about first, what do we need to know about coronavirus and um, infants? Specifically, let's, let's focus on two, um, two types of infants. Let's do maybe one year and under, and then let's talk about two specifically four months and under, right in that fourth trimester, because I know a lot of our parents are, um, have either just had a baby or an expecting, is expecting a baby very soon. Um, what do we need to know as expecting pregnant people and new parents kind of going into this? Absolutely. Um, and there's certainly a lot of different little details and parts to it, and we can kind of hone into those maybe on some specific questions. But overall, one um, wonderful silver lining that I've been able to say as a pediatrician is that as we are seeing um, in every country across the world is that overall pediatrics as a population has been much less effective than the adult population, which is really reassuring, um, at least from you know one standpoint, that there is that silver lining to it. So overall, um, I can and hope to reassure a lot of uh, parents that kids, even if they get the illness, um, are fighting it off uh, better than older ages. Um, and the, we can talk about how it looks in each age um, kind of specifically, and I can speak to that. But as a, as a whole, those numbers, I can definitely reaffirm that kind of, I was looking at numbers again today on the WHO and the CDC and percentage wise, it's much less in kids than it is adults, at least symptomatically. Okay. So what does it look like in each age? Um, what are parents, what should we be looking out for? And how do we tell if it is, you know, allergies? It's March right now, or April, I suppose, when we are um, recording this episode, how do we know if it's allergies versus coronavirus? Absolutely. So for better or for worse, it is presenting very similarly to adults if um, patients do have symptoms, meaning the main, I mean, every day we're actually kind of seeing some increasing symptoms that it can be presenting with, but the main ones being fever, 
cough, respiratory distress, and what we call GI symptoms, meaning gastrointestinal, so stomach, meaning nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, we are seeing conjunctivitis sometimes as a presenting symptom as well. And the very young ages, um, sometimes even fever, fever and just lethargy, which basically means um, kids being very, very tired. Um, so that's a lot of symptoms, but to speak to a cold or, um, or run-of-the-mill allergies versus coronavirus, so when it comes to allergies or even a run of mill cold versus coronavirus, one thing that we do know is that if kids are getting it, their symptoms are a lot less. So certainly you could picture they may present like they have allergies or a mild cold, or as we've seen time and time again, there might be a lot of asymptomatic children. So to speak that we may not know, you may not be able to tell, is this my run of the mill allergies or coronavirus? However, the good thing about that is that we don't necessarily need to do anything differently in terms of treating that child. You would treat them the same as if they have mild allergies or a mild cold. The one big thing that would be different is that we would want to really implement social distancing. And that's really the whole point of social distancing. Um, uh, it's obviously easier if you know you have it or if you have obvious symptoms that you know you should socially distance and not be around other people to spread it. Um, the bigger reason why social distancing is so important is so that people who are asymptomatic or very mild symptoms are not unknowingly spreading it around. So for your child, the good thing I can say is we would do nothing different. Um, as we all know, there's no approved treatment in general for coronavirus right now. So even if we're not sure or think it is, if they're well enough to be at home, we're saying treat it like you have it, self-isolate, stay home, decrease you and your child's exposure to other people, um, but there's nothing different in particular you would do for your child. But of course, low threshold to reach out, call your doctor if you're not sure, Pediatricians right now are definitely happy to speak to you. Um, we're there for you as we would be any other time. And if anything, we actually um, are not inundated in our offices because a lot of people are staying home and not getting sick with other things, but also um, not coming in for as many well checks. So we are here, we are available. If you're not sure, feel free to just trigger a phone call to your doctor to talk about whether or not you need to um, be seen. I love that so much. And listeners, this is not the first time you have heard me say this. When in doubt, give your pediatrician a call. They would so much more rather you give them a call, kind of precautionarily answer your questions, alleviate your fears and your anxiety, and also know that your child is fine and safe rather than worry all night long or, you know, take them into the hospital and you didn't even need that exposure. I love it. Give your pediatrician a call. They should be kind of your first defense of, um, you know, who you contact if you're worried. So, Julia, you talked about labored breathing a little bit. Give us an idea of what we're looking at there. Typical child should be, or infant, I guess, should be breathing 30 to 40 breaths a minute. Is that correct? And what are we looking at as an increase for labored breathing? Absolutely. So there's two um, main different signs uh, that I'll talk about kind of on exam and then ways to kind of tell in general. So if you're worried your child is having labor breathing, the first thing to do is lift up their shirt or their onesie, anything that will expose their chest so you can take a look. Um, because sometimes a kid can be breathing quite fast and with having a shirt or sweatshirt on, it's actually hard to tell until you really visualize that belly of those ribs. So the first thing to do is lift up the shirt and um, without having a visual, I'll try to explain it visually. So uh, respiratory distress or trouble breathing ascends upwards from the belly button up such that the first thing you see if a kid is having trouble is their belly goes a little bit faster. 
If it's the first time you've ever investigated your child's or your baby's breathing before, you'll probably notice that most babies' bellies are a little bit more protuberant than yours and mine, um, and also goes faster at a, even when they're well. So if it's your first time looking, don't get too alarmed if that's the only sign you see. But what we call, we call it belly breathing, and that belly is kind of going up and down quickly. The next step of distress would be that you see what are called retractions, which is when the baby's belly is really sucking underneath the ribs is the first spot. So they'll kind of, as if they're taking a really big deep breath in, kind of you'll be able to see the underneath of their ribs. The next spot is a retraction that are called intercostal retractions, which is when they're breathing so hard that you actually can see the outlinings of each rib because it's sucking in so much. The next step above that is right above where their neck is. If they're um, not too much of an infant, so you can still see their neck. The little ones, it's hard to see their neck. But the older they get, you're able to, and you actually would see a pulling in right above their breastbone. Um, they kind of really sucking in. And, and with that, they're kind of making a <gasps> sound typically. And then the next step is you actually may see some nasal flaring, which is their nostrils really flaring outward and their heads even bobbing. We call it head bobbing if their head is going up and down. The good thing about this is if they're truly in distress and it's gotten to that degree, it's not subtle. This is like, oh my gosh, my child's having a hard time breathing. Versus if you're really having to look at it and say, are they, are they not? Is that nasal flaring? Is it not? Are they trouble? Then they're probably okay. Um, so, and what's good also about respiratory distress in, the, in terms of being able to figure it out is it progresses. It doesn't all of a sudden come out of nowhere. It's not like they're totally fine one minute and you turn around and then all of a sudden they're in distress from their belly up. It's more of it starts belly, then under the belly, then the ribs, and then kind of progressively you're seeing it becoming harder. And it, especially for something like coronavirus or an illness that's making you quite sick, it doesn't come and go really drastically, meaning it should progressively be getting worse if it's getting to a point you need to do something about it. Um, there are some great YouTube videos in general. If you Google respiratory distress or retractions, that's a great way to be able to visually see what I'm talking about and put kind of a visual to the words. Um, so that's kind of what it looks like. In terms of a number for our numbers people out there, um, young infants, so three months, four months, or six months and under really, their respiratory rate is about, um, should be 30 to 40, exactly as you mentioned, hee hee. What that means, the way to check a respiratory rate, is either, again, lift your child's shirt up and take a look at their chest or their belly. Um, if it's hard to see and count how many times it's up going down, physically put a hand on their belly or their chest so you can feel it rising, and then count for a full minute. I caution against counting less than that and multiplying, like doing 15 and multiplying or 36 and multiplying, because ge uh, in general, children will breathe fast and then slow, especially little babies. And so if you do it for too short of a time and multiply, you may in either direction kind of get a false number. So do it for that full minute. And if you get about 30 to 40, again, for six months and under, that's a good place to be, even nine months and under, to be honest. Um, if you get above 60, so if you're kind of 40 to 50, you're starting to go up a little bit and getting into the, that they're breathing fast range. Above 60 is our number that we say that's when a doctor should be notified. Um, and that's when we call it, we call it tachypnea, fast breathing. And that's one piece of the whole picture that makes us say, okay, maybe this child's working a little bit harder. Typically that comes with the other signs I just talked about it. It doesn't usually just come on its own. You're usually seeing them have those retractions, they're breathing fast. And the third piece to respiratory distress I'll speak about is being able to eat and play. It's a little baby, if they're feeding well, is the best sign that that child is not in distress. 
in general, if kids are eating well, you can overall say that they're doing pretty well in, in terms of all aspects. Um, but particularly with um, breathing, because it's very hard for infants to breathe and eat at the same time, they are what we call nasal obligate breathers, sorry, obligate nasal breathers, where they really only breathe their nose. So if they're congested, it's particularly hard to eat and breathe such that if you have a breastfeeding or a bottle feeding young infant, if they're eating fine without having to pop off the breast of the bottle, that's a great sign that they're actually not that congested and um, not in distress. So that's a good measure in itself. Um, and then lastly, for the older kids who are not necessarily breast or bottle feeding, um, again, you should see those signs of distress um, that we talked about. Um, but also if they're running around and playing, that's a great sign that they're also breathing quite well versus a kid in more distress is start, going to start to get more tired and really not want to get up off the couch, off the bed, because um, it, it's already taking so much energy to breathe. Wow, those are really, really, and you did an amazing job explaining that um, kind of with no visuals. I hear it perfectly. I know that was super helpful, especially with those um, videos. Okay, thank you, but also that leads me into the next thing that I hope is so as well. How do we treat? You mentioned that we don't really do anything different than we would with a regular cold. There are some things that we can with small babies with a regular cold because I know that's a, that's a question from a lot of people, but also a lot of people use things like, you know, steaming up your bathroom and sitting in there. If your baby already has a cold and it's coronavirus, is that, should we stay away from that? What things are we looking at, at doing at home um, for them that are less than one, but then also specific those, those very newborn babies? Absolutely. So home remedies, remedies, which are my favorite for any cold, even before this coronavirus came along, as you were saying, um, is one of them is steamy shower. I definitely love that one. That's so that you, so how you do that is you turn your shower up as hot as it can go. So steaminess is really coming out. Everybody's bathroom is, of course, a little bit different, but you want to try to shut doors, shut windows. So it kind of steams up like a spa and you hold your baby right in that steam. Um, if it's, if you, you also could step in the shower, certainly I would say if it's hot enough, I wouldn't have your baby touch the hot water, but such that that steam is really going, um, into the nostrils, into the mouth. And that can really help the young infants kind of mobilize some of that mucus and either sneeze or cough it out, or at least just kind of open up the airways, especially when they're too young to blow their noses, um, and kind of purposely do that. So steamy shower is an excellent technique. Um, if you're someone who has a nebulizer at home for either your child or, or, or a sibling, and you have what's called normal saline, that's salt water. Um, it's a, something you also can buy over the counter. So if you already have the nebulizer for something for asthma or albuterol, what you would do is put the normal saline in there. And that's basically just a saltwater mist, which functions the same way as a steamy shower or like a beach ocean air, which actually can help open up the airways as well. Um, and again, saline you can buy over the counter without a prescription. They're also, if you Google, you can make saline at home. Um, it's just salt water and there's just a certain percentage of salt you're putting in there to just kind of help um, get some air um, ne uh, nebulized and aerosolized through, um, which can work well to open up a congested airway. Um, but the steamy shower does work too, so you don't have to kind of necessarily get a machine if you don't already have one. Um, the next thing is suctioning. So this is a, a hot topic and often suctions are um, on everyone's baby registries these days. Um, there's a, I would say without, um, I don't work for them, but Nose Frida is the most common one. There are other we ones We love well. Frida Baby. Yes, <laughs> we love 
Um, so they definitely have one. And what I'll say about the nose Frida, it's better than some of the other, the ones you get in the hospital, those little blue, because the nose Frida can go a little further and you, I know it sounds gross, but you actually physically suck on the other end to get a really good seal and get some mucus out. Two cautions with it. First, if you're going to use it, I would use some normal saline first. So saline drops so that you can squirt up the nose. Um, again, you can make it at home the same way you can buy it in this mucus um, saline you can for the nebulized. Um, and what that does is it breaks up some of the mucus that's really further back and stuck in there, and then you suck it right back out the nose, Frida. But the second piece to my my two caution was I would only use it if you think you need it. Meaning, if the baby sounds loud but is eating okay does not look like in distress, none of those signs of distress we talked about, leave the baby alone. Because one, they hate it, and it won't be fun for you either to kind of wrestle them down and struggle to do it. Um, two, it's gonna build right back up just the same way as if you were, you know, when you blow your nose, it kind of comes back in a few minutes anyways. Um, and three, the more you stick something up there, the more you can cause some inflammation, and then suddenly you've made the uh, situation a little worse than it was in the first place, because the hole itself has become inflamed and less area for to breathe through. So I say save it for times you need it, and then otherwise let the baby be. And the particular times to need it are either if you think the baby's really struggling on some mucus, and there's really something in there that you would want to blow out if they could. Um, and, and then the two other times are right before feeding. So especially if feeding started to be affected, I say suction out right before feed so you can sneak a good breastfeed or bottle feed in um, and before bed. So they can kind of get a little, a little bit of better sleep. You know, they're kind of decongested before they sleep. Um, otherwise I say kind of leave them alone. And again, I don't care how loud they are. They can sound like a freight train as long as they're breathing comfortably. So I care much more about the work of breathing as opposed to how loud they are. That all makes so much sense. Okay, while we're on the talk of um, symptoms, talk about fever. What kind of fever are we talking about? Also, did the same apply where 100.4 is kind of our cutoff where we want to start calling our pediatricians, checking in with them, so that right now we might not have any people come in, telemedicine is, well, what do we need to know about fevers in this space of kind of telemedicine but coronavirus time? Absolutely. So our threshold for fever is still 100.4 or higher. So if you're 100.4 or higher, that's considered a fever. Less than that, not necessarily a fever. Even if most people run 97, 98, and even if 99 is a little high for them, from our perspective in pediatrics, we wouldn't say they have a fever yet, which is good. Um, and that is one of the presenting, the main presenting symptoms for children, similar to adults. Um, although more kids may not have a fever, as we talked about, because they could be of a more mild version. Um, and typically, when we think about fevers in pediatrics, um, we usually say most viruses can have three to four days of fever. The flu in general can have longer than that, and coronavirus likely will be one that we say can have longer than that for a virus. But overall, what I, the reason I say that is that for most um, viruses and fevers, if kids are looking quite well, we'll try to see if their bodies can run it out in three to four days without jumping to any other tests or blood work, et cetera. If you start hitting the five-day mark, that's when you should call your pediatrician, um, especially if you've had true fever greater than 100.4, again, for five days in a row. That's when we start to think about, is this more than a virus? Is it an ear infection or is it a urinary tract infection in this day and age right now? Of course, we think, is this coronavirus? Less than that, if your kid looks well, meaning is breathing okay, eating okay, and has a mild fever, most pediatricians, even more than ever, will say, stay at home, try to fight it out, be in touch with us if we reach day five. 
Um, once we reach day five, that's when we would decide, does the baby need to be seen? Do we need to do any other tests, such as looking at the urine, looking at blood, um, and or do we need to do a coronavirus test? Um, and again, so day five, as long as they look well, would be a kind of our, our threshold. Okay, and as far as um, testing, well, I guess I have two questions, but testing a child, does it look the same test adult? It's a nose swab. Correct. Yes, and, but tests are still very limited, unfortunately. So it's state by state, even hospital by hospital, practice by practice. So be in touch with your pediatrician and even feel free, I empower moms and, and parents out there to um, Google the local testing sites around them because it's really changing daily about testing criteria, meaning who meets criteria for testing um, and where testing sites are located and available um, in order to get them. Totally, it's really good information. Okay, my second question is we had you know, there was this wave of concern with insects and the coronavirus, and now we've been talking about fevers, and a lot of people will have Tylenol, ibuprofen, their child. Is this a concern if we think it might be coronavirus to not try and save off the fever with something like Tylenol? So this, um, uh, in terms of the, the fear with ibuprofen and or Motrin or Advil, um, I don't officially know yet, but I do hear from some sources that it may not be true meaning that Tylenol or Motrin are both equally fine and that Motrin may not actually be worsening it. These are from some um, international resources that I was hearing. I don't think our CDC and WHO are saying that yet, um, but it did reassure me, which would make sense with most viruses, is that Tylenol or Motrin wouldn't affect it. So I think as of now, I personally am, am okay with my patients giving either if their child has a fever, if you think they need it. Again, I always say, um, all right, not again, I haven't mentioned it yet, but on this podcast, but I, I don't say you have to treat a fever such that if the if a child looks okay and it's not miserable, you don't have to bring it down with anything. A fever is the body's way of fighting off an infection. Um, so that we don't have to do anything if they're okay. That said, most kids feel pretty crummy with a fever. So if they're really crummy, I say, go ahead and give a dose um, to bring it down and alleviate their pain or discomfort. And I, I do think it's still okay at this point in terms of what we know, um, if, especially if your child is really miserable. So, and you know, this episode airs and then we don't get a chance to update it because that's how podcasts work. So before you do anything, make sure that you're checking with your pediatrician. You know, I, Dr. Julia is actually a doctor, but she's not your doctor. So make sure that you are checking with your doctor before you do anything. We're just here to get your wheels turned, give you some information, some good footing that you can at least start your research on if you think that your child gets sick. Um, okay, you talked about continuing to eat. A lot of people burn their babies. What do we know about breastfeeding and coronavirus? We also have, you know, some instances of parents birthing and separated from baby. What are we doing in this and what do we know? Yeah, so this is, of course, also an evolving um, topic and lots of information will hopefully be elucidated as this um, continues. But as of now, there's been sh shown to have no transmission from coronavirus through the breast milk, which is another reassuring, awesome thing I'm able to say from a pediatric standpoint, um, such that they basically, when in testing breast milk, they haven't seen any um, shedding of the virus. Um, and there also not have been many babies who have gotten it from moms. I will say the risk with breastfeeding overall in a positive mom 
is that you risk transmitting it through the, the main source, which is respiratory. Um, and obviously it's hard to not breathe on your baby if you are breastfeeding. So um, I will speak to two different um, uh, kind of big parts about it. But just as he said, I think the best thing to do is um, to always be in touch with your pediatrician because we're really taking this as a case-by-case -case situation um, in general. Um, but the way your baby would get it if you have it, again, is respiratory. So through droplets, through sneezing, through coughing, through if you're close enough through breathing and droplets directly um, onto the baby. So the one thing you can do is you certainly can pump, especially if you're in the midst of your most contagious period, um, that could certainly in significantly decrease your risk of spreading it to your baby. What you would do is pump the milk, have a caregiver who doesn't have symptoms be the one feeding it to the baby. And there's some great resources on the CDC in particular on best ways to sanitize your pump and um, pump uh, with um, decreasing the risk of spreading um, the, um, sorry, the coronavirus, um, even through actually pumping as, as possible. Um, and if you didn't pump and you are the breastfeeding or bottle feeding your own child, um, one thing to do then is even to wear a mask or a scarf while breastfeeding, just try to decrease the amount of times you're breathing or sneezing on your baby. Um, the second piece, as I mentioned, I'll talk about two pieces of it, um, is right at birth. So right at birth thing is a little bit different than if the child's a little bit older. Right now, a lot of hospitals that I am working in conjunction with are following the CDC recommendations, which is to separate moms and babies at birth if moms are positive at the time of birth or undergoing testing to find out if they are. They still are allowing breastfeeding, um, but they are recommending that you pump with some strict hand hygiene and wearing that mask while doing the pumping and again having a different caregiver actually give the pumped breast milk. Um, parents have the, the right to say no, that they don't want to separate, um, which um, as he and I were talking about earlier this week, the WHO is not necessarily recommending separating moms and baby at this time, so that does give parents the power to decide. Um, what CDC is recommending right now, again, is separating and that if you do decide to not separate is to, is to follow lots of strict measures to help decrease transmission, which would then be, even if you're in the same room, but trying to stay six feet away from each other as much as possible, wearing gloves and um, gowns and masks to help decrease the, the transmission. Um, and then um, you certainly could still do the pumping. I will say one more piece with breastfeeding in general is that um, certainly, be, again, be in touch with your pediatrician. And the reason why it's case by case is also really depends when you are positive, if you are pregnant at the time of delivery, before delivery, or um, later on, and depending on how old your child is. Uh, like any other virus, um, breastfeeding is protective in the sense that your body makes antibodies, your, which is the thing that fights an infection, and you are passively giving that to your child through your breast milk. So it is protective. However, there are different um, pieces of that, meaning if your child's two months or four months or six months, um, it's likely a little bit, you're in a little bit of a safer range than if your baby is one day old, such that in general, we consider the younger they are is a little bit higher risk, which is why they're recommending separating um, at birth right now in terms of at least being next to your baby. But that breast milk may still give them some protection, which is good. That's awesome. So it gives me hope that, you know, there's a little bit of inoculation that happens Talk to me a little bit about the inoculation now that my wheels are turning on, about maybe breastfeeding parents get it, baby's already born, they continue to breastfeed, do we think that baby's going to have a little bit of protection even though they weren't on the inside when the birthing parent was sick? 
That is the hope, yes. So when we make antibodies, it goes, again, you see a virus, your body sees it as something foreign. It makes what are called antibodies, which I like to say are like the fighter jets, fighter jets in your body fighting something off, such that if you get sick later on in life and you hit, see that same virus again, you don't get as sick because your body stores those fighter cells and can fight it off in the future. Those fighter cells are the antibodies. Um, and right, and that goes through our, it stays in our blood, but also goes through our breast milk. So if you get sick, you are giving those antibodies to the baby to help protect them. Um, so yeah, so it can be both protective while you're pregnant because your body's making antibodies and that'll go through the placenta to the baby, creating some um, immunity there, or after the baby's born, when you're breastfeeding, you're giving them um, antibodies through the breast milk. We call that passive immunity. That said, we haven't had enough research yet showing what levels are, and we can't necessarily prove that baby's going to be immune, but it certainly is one way to get immunity, which we don't have at other ages, which is a great um, thing. Sure. Our bodies are just so incredibly cool. Um, okay. And naturally my brain went to washing your baby. You know, a lot of folks want to delay giving their baby the first bath. We know that ACOG recommends about 24 hours before the first bath. We, a lot of folks want to really enjoy that golden hour, especially right after birth, right? What do we know about babies, especially if there is concern with coronavirus? Is this a call to you know, maybe wash a baby as soon as they're born, or do we think it's okay to what? What are we thinking? So right now, um, if moms are positive at birth, or again are go undergoing testing because they're symptomatic, the, um, the CDC recommendations are to bathe as quickly as possible to try to decrease any risk of transmission. Um, if you're not positive, you can follow the same guidelines that you would have, you know, prior to this coronavirus pandemic, such that if you wanted to delay the bath, and there definitely have been shown to be benefits of that, that is absolutely fine. And there is no recommendation to bathe soon if you're not symptomatic. But again, if you are symptomatic, they are recommending that right now to try to decrease risk of um, transmission as much as possible. This has really just kind of, you know, rippled into places of life I, that I just never thought all these places would be touched, I think, by this virus. And it has just been, this is wild, I guess. I'm just still trying to find yes. the words on, you know, how to even talk about what is happening in our country and our world, just in the whole world. So my final question, and I think we have talked a lot about afterbirth, but let's kind of rewind. What do we need to know about pregnancy and coronavirus? There are a lot of people who are like, okay, great, I know a lot. What about me in these few weeks of my pregnancy? Are we at higher risk? Is there, you know, anything that we need to know other than we might have limitations in the number of birth support people, we might have limitations in pain relief methods, we might have, you know, limitations in postpartum, anything specifically to pregnant people that they need to be aware of with coronavirus? So right now, and again, numbers are still such that hopefully we'll have more understanding of research soon, but right now they've been shown to be no negative, shown to have no negative effects for a mom to baby while pregnant. The only thing they have seen is there have been some moms who have gone into more preterm pre or premature labor. However, they haven't been able to specifically pinpoint that it was the coronavirus that did that. There might've been other reasons, but they haven't seen any other negative effects on the infant or the fetus post um, delivery other than potentially delivering sooner. 
um, that's kind of the, the biggest update we have right now. So really, main, mainly the big changes are right after birth, as we've been talking about, in terms of the bathing and potential separation, um, really just a decreased risk of transmission. And, and while I'm on that topic, I can say, so I'm, I'm sure as a mom, if I were positive and delivering, my next question would be, okay, I separated birth, what does that mean when I go home? So um, it, I would say, again, this is a case by case, so be in touch with your pediatrician, as well as when you're in the hospital, if that um, unfortunately, is a circumstance that you find yourself in, the specialist will be talking to you there. So the pediatrician who sees you in the hospital, even if it's not your pediatrician, your OB, and potentially even an infectious disease specialist will be involved, because it really depends a little bit about your unique circumstances, as well as where you are in the disease. If you're right at the beginning, and maybe in the most contagious period, they're going to want you to be a little bit maybe more strict about those measures, versus if you're towards the tail end, that would be a different scenario. If you have other caregivers or home who are asymptomatic, that's one thing. If you don't have those, it's always a risk versus benefit ratio. Um, what I would say is certainly be in touch with your specialist if that's the case. Um, and the the overall, the rule of thumb is you can stop those um, uh, kind of higher measures to decrease risk once you are three days with no fever, one week from when your symptoms began, and or you have two negative tests depending on whether or not your, um, your area has a place where you can test easily. Um, if you have two negative tests more than 24 hours apart, you're considered cleared. Um, if you don't have that, again, we're basing on the symptoms. This is when you can basically go back to normal um, care as you would for your newborn. Wow. So it has been so jam-packed. Thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything else that you want us to know that I left out that's on your heart that, you know, it's just something that you've seen around and you want to get out anything at all. Absolutely. Well, um, first of all, I totally agree. This is like a different um, world. I feel like we're all living in right now. And I certainly even feel like this is a different medicine than I've ever practiced in my life. Coronavirus and beyond, you know, we're doing a lot of telemedicine, which means that we're interacting with patients in different ways. I do think to some degree, as a lot of us know, medicine is kind of behind the times in, t in terms of electronics. So I do think there'll be some good things that come out of this. So a silver lining we can think about is that medicine has been forced to rev up with the 21st century, which is exciting. So um, that's out there for you moms and dads that are better than we are <laughs> doing it um, electronically. Um, and then I think the other really big thing is that, um, again, as scary as this all is, uh, pediatrics and overall has been um, a population that's been, you know, much le less at risk. So I really do want to add that reassurance out there for parents that kids um, are really, you know, getting much more mild versions across the board. Um, I do, with that though, comes that the caution to still really be practicing social distancing because we we don't want to be spreading it with you know having mild versions. So that's the best way to flatten the curve, as everyone talks about, is that whether you have symptoms or treat it like you do that together as a society we can get through this as as tough as it is um, but reach out to your friends your family do as many facetimes as you can because we all certainly need each other and to lean on each other you know more than ever um, and i know it's hard from home but we can do it you know um, apart together as, as we all say and then the last plug for pediatricians i will say 
Um, we really are, um, you know, I can speak to our practice. I'm sure practices across, across the country feel the same way. We're available. We're here for you. Even if we're not seeing you in person, almost everyone across the country is doing telehealth now. Um, and again, pediatric offices are kind of quiet amidst this because we're keeping everyone when home to keep everyone safe. So reach out and call your pediatrician. They're, they're there to talk to you um, and to help you decide and, and get you get you through this. I love that so much. Thank you so much for being here, listeners. Yeah, this is a time to pivot, right? Adjust, adapt, push yourself, challenge yourself to um, find that silver line. Julia has used, used that a couple times here. So it's, I have to look a harder in, a, in maybe different places than what you thought you were going to look, but the silver lining is totally there forget to advocate for yourself when your doctor calls to cancel your prenatals or your ultrasounds. You can ask whoever is canceling your appointment to have a nurse or a doctor call you back so that you can have your questions that otherwise would have been answered at your appointment answered still. All right, listeners, thank you so much for hanging out with us today by showing up today. You are showing up for yourself and letting us know that you care. We see you. We hear you. We appreciate you. Until next time. Hey there. Before you go, I want to let you know who made today's episode possible. Today's episode is brought to you by Primally Pure. Now, you know, I've been striving to switch to a totally green lifestyle, and it's hard. It takes time. But I'll tell you one thing that I did instantly. And matter of fact, it's the first thing I recommend to people who are trying to balance their hormones, get pregnant, stay pregnant, people who are pregnant, or people who are nursing. Changing your skincare routine is everything. You need to be organic and toxic free. For me, I made the switch to all natural product skincare three years ago, and my complete routine comes from Primally Pure. I use their clarifying serum in the complexion mist in the morning. I cleanse each night with the cleansing oil, moisturize in the evenings with the fancy face serum. I also use their lotion and deodorant and dry shampoo. They even have a baby line that we gift to all of our clients because what better products for your newborn than all natural butt balm, baby oil, baby powder, baby soap. They've offered our people 10% on your first purchase. You can use the code HEHE10 to take advantage of this awesome savings. That's H-E-H-E-1-0. If there's ever a time to make a switch, it's when you're wishing for growing or nursing a tiny human. Visit PrimallyPure.com and save with the code HEHE10. But proceed with caution because it is totally addicting. I'm warning you now. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.
Nothing in this podcast is to be used as medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. As always, please consult your healthcare provider with any questions or concerns you have about your health or anything discussed in this podcast. Side effects may include educated adults, informed decision-making skills, and consensual care. Tranquility by Hee and the Birth Lounge are not responsible for any ideal births that were created with this podcast. The birth parent deserves all the credit.